Indian and cowboy, indigenous, independent, and listener-supported, rooted firmly at the intersection between digital media, podcasting, and indigenous storytelling. Chelsea, do you remember when we were in Winnipeg? Only vaguely. (laughs) (laughs) And we were introduced by the Federal Minister of Science. Science, 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 science. Yeah. Who's that, Chelsea? Uh, That would be uh, the Honorable Kirsty Duncan. Ooh, Honorable. Yeah, I'm amazed in this day and age that they don't call her the Ministress of Science. I guess we've moved beyond... Um, gendering those terms, but I kind of think that ministress of science is actually kind of badass sounding. It kind of is. Yeah. It also, I think, probably captures the stress of being a minister. Right. Especially of science. Science. Yeah. Science. 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 Alright, let's listen to uh, what awesome things she had to say about us. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Thank you for coming. Tonzi Anin Ho. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are in Treaty 1 territory, the homeland of the Métis Nation. I'm really excited to launch today's discussion, Tomorrowland, pushing the frontiers of science and innovation. Cutting-edge science is critical to securing Canada's low-carbon energy future. It is highly probable that Canada's long-term energy future... Yes. Yes, sweetheart. (laughs) I have agreement. It is highly probable that Canada's long-term energy future will be transformed by unpredictable breakthroughs in science and technology. Today's discussion allows us to imagine an energy future that could emerge from breakthroughs and radical innovations one that could alter Canada's energy system as we transition to a low-carbon society. It's why supporting discovery science is so important. So I'm hoping a key theme in our discussion today will highlight what we can do to support cutting-edge science and how it can be incorporated into our vision of Canada's energy future. And now I'd like to turn the stage over to our two moderators this afternoon. Please, everyone, join me in welcoming co-hosts of the podcast, Métis in Space, Chelsea Vowell and Molly Swain. And just so you know, Molly Swain is Métis from Calgary and is studying in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. And Chelsea Vowell is Métis from Lac-Saint-Anne in Alberta. She holds a Bachelor of Education and a Bachelor of Law and is developing Cree language curricula. And she's also studying, she's doing her master's, (laughs) I'm not sure where they have time to do this, at the University of Alberta. I wish I could stay for this panel. I've met a physicist turned poet. I've met these extraordinary women, and I apologize that I can't stay. So I look forward to the report. Have a wonderful session. I know you're in tremendous hands. All right, so thank you so much to Minister Duncan for that introduction. it was nice to meet you, and uh, looking forward to, yeah. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to Odepemsu Skoewa Kitsikisakuk Metis in Space, Molly Swinitsiagason. Chelsea Vaughan Nitsiagason. Otuskwanek Nitotsen. Mantusakaegnik Nitotsen. And now uh, we're going to get our, our guests to introduce themselves. We did a crash course in Cree. Nitsi Gatson, Eric, Eagle, yeah. University of Manitoba. Nitsi Gatson, John, 
and I come from the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam people, otherwise known as Vancouver. Aaron Bow. I am a science fiction author from Nebraska, but I live in Kitchener Waterloo. Let's give him a hand for that Cree. There we go. That's how fast it can be. That was awesome. All right, so uh, we want to just talk, before we jump into things, we want to talk a little bit about where we're coming from and what we do with the podcast. So we are an Indigenous feminist science fiction podcast. So usually the way it works is Chelsea and I get together, we drink a bottle of wine, we watch uh, science fiction uh, television a show or movie that has something to do with Indigenous people, which you would be surprised at how many there are. And then we uh, analyze it. Usually we roast we- it gently over... The flames of our burning decolonial love. As it spins in its own juices. Uh, so we're super, super excited today to have the opportunity to talk to people who do science fact. Like real than, science. Yeah, because rather than science fiction. We, we exist in, in a scientific sphere, but we don't know science. So we need these people to help us understand science. Mm. So, um, and you also may not know this about us. You can't tell just by looking at us, probably. But we actually come from the future. Uh, future. We were born 300 years in the future, uh, and when we are there, uh, we live on a spaceship that orbits the Earth, the Métian spaceship. Um, now, that future looks a lot different from what we see today, and a big part of the reason why we're here now is we were actually sent back as children uh, to experience what things are like now and to usher in a decolonized future, which we call the Kitsitop Wewen, or the Great Truth-Telling. And we, we always knew that this was our destiny because it was in all the history books, so, you yeah. know. Yeah, we just grew up, grew up with knowing it. that we were going to have to do that when we were 10. Mm. You know, other, other kids are out there, like, scraping their knees and stuff. We have to go back in time and, and save the world, essentially. So here we are. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, not to, not to, like, pump ourselves up no, too no, much. No, no, uh, no. But, yeah, we're just here to save the world. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but we can't do that by ourselves, right? That's not something that we can just spontaneously make happen. And science, and particularly the en- energy economy and the energy future, is something that you know is going to have to drastically change to get to where we are going to be in 300 years. Uh, so Canada, in particular, has always been sort of a resource-extractive energy economy place, country. Uh, and so we're really excited to have a chance to talk to these folks about what it is that they're doing and what they see as their vision for the future as well. And I just wanted to introduce our, our littlest Métis in Space member, um, because in, in, by the time uh, we get back to our future in 300 years, I'll have had 200 children. Uh, but I, you know, so I won't remember all their names, but this one, this one is only uh, number four, and uh, her name is Wabanatagos. And Waban means dawn, and Atagos means star in Cree, so she's a dawn star, she's Venus. She's very space. I named her for space. Yes. All right. So to jump into it, we just wanted to start with, you know, really basic question. Who are you and what is it that you do? What, what, sorts of, what do you science when you science? In 30 seconds or less. In 30 seconds do, or less. Do, do. Okay. I woke up one day and uh, decided to do renewables full time. Uh, my wife at the time said, you know, you're working a lot and you're doing renewables for fun in the evenings and weekends. Why don't you do it full time? So one day I just decided to do full time do renewables and uh, it just shot up exponentially. So I ended up doing just about every renewables that you can think of. And I learn every day. I discover every day. And I work with uh, great students. I'm surrounded by young people. And uh, we innovate. We think. Uh, some of the stuff is hard. There's no question. It's, uh, it's hard. It needs math, you know. It needs modeling. Uh, it needs great science and models and stuff. But we innovate and we push forward. And uh, we work as a team. And it's always exciting every day to go to work. And that's what I... I basically decided to do what I would do in my retirement which was renewable energy. So I'm Mr. Renewables, morning, day, evenings, even in my sleep. So that's all I do. So, so when you're talking about renewables, like, could you give us some examples about what that is as people who are not sci- super science literate? Well, I, I think we, we all know intuitively that we have to go to 100% renewables. What it means is you have to live from recent sunlight. Right now, we only live from ancient sunlight. So in Canada, 90, 86% of the time we use energy we do it through ancient sunlight of millions of years ago, harnessed into fossil fuels. John? Before I started my current job, I was a laser scientist, 
And, that uh, sounds so science. Well, very sciencey. And in fact, I did something called coherent control, which is sounds even more sciencey and less useful. Nod sagely. Um, but currently, I'm uh, vice president of an organization called CFAR, which is the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Uh, Minister Duncan actually alluded to us without alluding to us when she talked about artificial intelligence. And so CFAR, by its name, is in the business of supporting research that we hope will be the next big thing, but right now is just somebody's crazy idea. And artificial intelligence was one of those. We started supporting it 30 years ago. CFAR has been around for 35 years. Uh, We were one of the early supporters of Jeff Hinton, and so the overnight success in machine learning. Jeff published his key paper in machine learning in 1986, so more than 30 years ago is when machine learning... Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's when machine learning was really a crazy idea, and now it's the hottest thing going, and uh, PhD graduates in machine learning command salaries of, you know, a quarter million dollars a year starting salary, so... We are in the wrong field. <clears throat> yeah, Truly. me too. Truly. <laughs> Truly. I'm an author. You, what, what should I be doing? Machine learning. Machine learning. Back Machine propagation. Learning. That's Back what you want to learn about. Okay. Okay. Take note, everybody. Yeah. yeah. This is time to, Wait, time to we, switch our CVs up. Can we, can we go back in time again? And see, I don't see why not. Uh, paradox. Are there any uh, like sort of quantum physicists, physicists who could tell us if we would actually destroy no? ourselves? Okay. Well, let's assume yes. I, if, if nobody says no, then yeah, it let's must go be do possible. it. Okay. All right. Great. All right, Aaron. Um, an origin story, huh? Uh, I used to be a physicist. I used to study high-energy particle physics. Um, yeah, nothing practical. Uh, we failed to find the quark gluon plasma. That was my great contribution to science. Go us. Um, then I dropped out of graduate school to become a poet, which is a, a really lucrative career I mood. I, I, I really recommend that if you're looking to build a prosperous future for other people, uh, not for yourself. Um, I made a living eventually as a science writer because it turns out if you both know what a quark is and can translate physics into English in complete sentences, there's a demand for that. And I still do a lot of that. I do a lot of storytelling around science, helping scientists tell their stories because people are interested, but it's difficult to make the bridge, so I'm a bridge builder. But I'm also a science fiction author and a poet. I write for young people. Um, my most recent book is The Scorpion Rules, which is 500 years in the future, um, post-climate change, low-carbon future. It's, it's marketed as a dystopian, but it's really a utopia with cracks in it. Except for these seven people who are having a really hard time, the world is in pretty decent shape. Um, but, of course, the story is about the seven people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a great segue, um, because as we know, or as you may know, if you are at all a big giant nerd like we are and love sci-fi, science fiction is really very much about exploration, right? It's about, it's about world building, it's about imagining possibilities for the future, for different worlds, for, for new types of ways of being and relating to people. So one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about just to get started is you know, what, what's your favorite science fiction, fantasy, horror, speculative fiction? And, you know, has that inspired you at all? Does your work relate to that? Have you drawn anything from sci-fi? Have you written yourself into your own sci-fi stories? <laughs> Mary, sue it up. No, I'm always interested to see if scientists are interested in science fiction. I, how can you not be? How this is my. Th- this is what I don't understand. How can you be into science and not be a big giant nerd with like Isaac Asimov novels like piled under your pillow? Like how can you? How can you science without that? Well, well, you're you going to tell us, really? Well, you brought up Asimov. I love Asimov. I read Asimov, but. You know, I'm an engineer. I'm a gear. And uh, I look at my lifetime, and I don't believe right now the answers are out there. Later on, we will have to move out of the earth because the sun's going to burn up. But right now, we've got real problems, okay? This is like a chess game. We have a real issue. And the answers aren't out there. The answer, the problem is people. Why are we going to go through climate change is only a people problem. I work on technology. I can influence people, hardly none. I'm not a scientific writer. I'm, not, I'm an engineer. So I hope people out there will change the people. And, there are, and please trust, there's guys that are out there trying to find solution. It's hard. Uh, we get very little support. Uh, we love what we're doing. 
Um, and right now, I don't have time for science fiction. Uh, the science fiction is really we're living it. We've got 2050. How old is your 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 your? your she's your, she's your, four months. How old yeah. is she going to be when it's 50, uh, 500 parts per million, uh, four five hundred parts per million in in the atmosphere of CO two? Uh, that's why I brought you here. You tell me. She's going to be. Uh, it's going to. She well. She's uh, fifteen. So I have to subtract fifteen. So she'll be about uh, thirty five years old. So so kids right now, you got to understand that there's more pe the, the people. Most of the people living on the planet are young, and they'll be experiencing five hundred parts per million of CO2. I can't tell you what that means. I work on the solution. And I work at the disputed scale. That means for remote communities, for, for uh, villages, for First Nations. I don't work on the big stuff. I work on the small stuff. And I work at the forefront when nobody's thinking about it. So when we started Kinetic Turbines, we were core people in Canada saying, hey, why don't we put windmills in the water? Oh, yeah, that's cool, that's cool. And you're like, oh, what's the physics? Okay, so we started off in our basements at midnight, okay, and then we, we showed up a man I showed up a man hydro and they said, I want to do kinetic turbines. And they said, Well, how about this? How about that? I said, so I went back to the evenings, worked it out, you know, and said, Yeah, I think this could work, right? So now I ran the National Center for Hydrokinetic Turbines and we know that we're gonna beat the price. But it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it sounds like you're doing your own world building here. Mm -hmm. you, well. you know, science fiction really, at its best, is all about solving the big problems and asking the big questions. And it sounds like you're the one going out and, and doing that. I'm in, in Eric's world. world. I'm in my own science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I wake up every day to, to work out technologies that once I'm retired, they'll, 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 they'll have fruition. So they, I probably won't see them uh, exp uh, go to market in my lifetime, but I developed the building blocks to go there. And I also help other people. So, uh, at, for example, I run a center and will help anybody that comes to our center to commercialize their technology. So we drop the costs of how they, they develop their technology, and we're all about innovation, and we're all about reducing the cost so that people will go in and say, hey, you know, I will buy this for my community, I'll own and operate, and it's safe, and it's uh, low cost, and it's, you don't need to be a scientist or a very trained person to be able to use it. So, so what's happening in the future in the distributed world is people start to take care of their own business, their own generation of energy. And yes, there's, there's a price to pay, time, involvement. And it's not another person's going to do it for you. You're going to have to be the prime uh, motivator within your house and within your community. So my house is going 100% renewable. Uh, it's a work in progress. And people that know me, please don't laugh. Okay? <laughs> it's not a science fiction project. It is a real project. But I'm working at it bit by bit. And I'm showing, trying to show that you could do it for $25,000, the price of a renovation of a kitchen. Uh, but do it. But I am doing it myself. Eh? So... Mm. It's like, it's not for everybody that can hit that cost. So I have a Tesla battery in my basement, and I can't get it connected because I have a lot of problems with the people. And yes, I do feel like I science fiction movies when they come and tell me that my power cable has to be go, grow in size because I self-generate inside the house. But, you know, people need science. So you're the crotchety scientist in the base, literally in the basement, getting mad at people who are coming in and, and, and messing with, your, with what you want to do. That's, in that's the movie, he would be played by Jeff Goldblum. Right? And Obviously. no one would be listening to him. Yes. Yeah. All, All right. right. John and Aaron. Speculative fiction. I'd uh, put Murakami at the top of my list. He's very good. Um, but I of a generation that I grew up reading Tolkien. I read all four volumes out loud three times because I have three children. So I've almost memorized it. And, of course, Asimov and Ray Bradbury. Again, I'm of that generation, so... I feel like Asimov is very lasers, honestly. When I think lasers, Asimov is one of those very technical science fiction writers that I think does... Bio, biochemist. Biochemist? He was a biochemist? What? Yes, he was. Whoa. I totally know what that means. <laughs> yes. Biology and chemistry combined. Those are things one. that you could put together. Brand new field. And, and do things with. <laughs> so what you're saying is it was Tolkien that got you into lasers. <laughs> Yeah, more or less. <laughs> so does, you know, are you inspired at all by, by any of the science fiction that you see coming out? I mean, a lot of what we're seeing right now is, is very dystopian. It's very dark. Um, it tends to have a lot of, you know, 
themes of, of rebellion, of suspicion of, you know, the government, suspicion of corporations, um, you know, suspicion, like, sort of a highly individualist science fiction. You know, you kind of have the, you know, the Katniss Everdeen, for example, from The Hunger Games uh, comes to mind. Um, do you see any of that in the work that you're doing, or, or do you see any of that when you're, when you're out there trying to get your work, you know, completed? Well, one of our programs... Um one of our key researchers published a book called Why Nations Fail, so I guess we do deal with real-life dystopias. And so, like Eric, I worry about the present as much as the future. Um, social inequality is another thing that we study in CIFAR. And so, yeah, we do worry about dystopias. They generally arise as a result of government policy rather than some science thing. Oh, I'm... I'm absolutely influenced by the science fiction I, I grew up on with my tremendous crush on Mr. Spock and, and <laughs> deep, di- deep, deep identification with Doctor Who and all that stuff, yeah. I was, my husband says we were into Doctor Who before Doctor Who was cool, and I'm like, oh, sweetie. I have news for you. Still yeah. not cool. But anyway. Um, I think I'm hearing some, you know, I don't have time for science fiction, and I, I completely understand where you're coming from with that, because I am one of the person, people who knows what, you know, 500 parts per million looks like, and what, you know, what rapid deglaciation is, and just, a, you can see the disaster coming. It's like being the uh, engineer, uh, the engineer of the Titanic was aboard the Titanic. Did you know that? And you know, had the maps and knew exactly what was happening as the ship was going down. And so there's a real sadness and desperation in the climate scientists and the re- renewable energy scientists that I talk to. And it's, it's interesting, but it's also inspiring because they also all have this, but we could do this, solutions on hand. I mean, it's going to be hard. It's going to be desperately hard. We need to start now. But I think one of the things that we're lacking right now is the renewable energy Star Trek. We need the positive, optimistic vision of a decarbonized future. Not just like a decarbonized vision of what we've got now, but like a green, um, local, a different story with more voices involved. I think that could mobilize support behind what we're doing now and get people to do the hard work but we don't have that. We don't have that story in the public consciousness. We have the fear, mm-hmm. but we don't have the story. I, I, this is interesting because, uh, you know, what I'm hearing a lot of is, is you're, you guys are talking about the science. And, you know, science can only take us so far, but it's people who have to take us the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I, I find that that has a lot of parallels with what we're doing. You know, we, we, we're trying to work on decolonization. And, you know, and you can come up with all sorts of terms. And you can indigenize this and indigenize that and have reconciliation moments and all this kind of thing but if people don't follow through if if there isn't some sort of fundamental change then none of that's actually going to happen and a lot of you know when we talk about decolonization uh it's you know like we like to say it's not a metaphor it has to do with the land it has to do with our relationships with the land and if if science uh you know, if science is just relying on a certain sort of technology to save us from ourselves, but we don't actually change, then it sounds like, you know, you guys are saying we're headed for disaster anyway, right? We have to change how we think about things and how we relate. Could I? Well, just, uh, just one of the things that, speaking as a scientist, I think it's very clear that if we rely on science and technology alone, we're not going to get there. I mean, I think scientists, when I, I studied in a previous, previous life, tropospheric aerosols and their forcing impact on climate change. And scientists are frustrated because the public doesn't understand them, doesn't understand evidence. Mm-hmm. And it's because scientists are fairly crappy at telling stories. Yeah, but there's also an active rejection of evidence and expertise going on. Um, you there's know, that too. There's that too, yeah. yeah. But also um, I think that there's getting, getting back to dystopia... I think there's a real danger that, that when people like Margaret Atwood push the dystopian line to an extreme, there's a danger that the public will say, oh, that's the storyline, you know, we're all screwed. Right, and just and give so up. And yeah. so there's no point in doing anything. Yeah. Prepare you, you the bunkers. You so negative, but you, but you also seem like the most hopeful here. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you actually... You've got to remember something. When scientists talk, they're conservative 
they don't want to overestimate the answer, so they underestimate the answer. So I think if you would dig down deeper, you would find that the situation is probably a bit more dark than what it is hopeful. We are going to a renewable energy future the same way as we no longer throw garbage outside our door, that we no longer smoke and kill ourselves and kill other people. We will adopt a renewable energy future. People will fight it. And the question is, will the fight occur in the time space that is good enough that we don't destroy the other generation? I can't tell you the answer. That creates a lot of science and a lot of scientists. But am I hopeful? The, uh, if you look at it from an engineering point of view, there's 100,000 times more energy coming from the sun than we need. So we could solve the problem, no problem. It's solvable. There's no question. So it is designed to work 100% renewable. There's no question about it. Except we have to stop the, the fossil fuel world. We have to see the fossil fuel world how we saw cigarette smoking. I believe that Canadians will be all vegetarian, 50% uh, of Canada will be vegetarians by 2040. Okay? If I was going to write a science fiction book, that would be its title. Okay? Why, why Canadians will be veg mostly vegetarian in 2040? Because in that world that we're going to evolve, you will, you, it's one thing that meat is bad for you from your health wise, but it's bad for climate change. And you have this hardcore resistance of people that will not give up meat. It's hardcore to their belief. They don't want to talk about it. We will have, for climate change, for 10 billion people not eat meat. Okay? That is something that is part of climate change. So that's actually, this is also a great segue, right? Because we're talking about, you know, how energy relates to, like, all aspects of life, right? It's not just about you know, having, having solar panels or, or switching your house over, having Tesla batteries. But it's also about, you know, making social changes, right? It's about, you know, everything from changing your diet to, you know, changing how people relate to one another and how people see, you know, what, what their lifestyle is like. Um, you know, so you've given some really good examples, I think, of that, um, kind of on an individual level, people making individual choices to change. Uh, so one of my questions for, for everybody is, um, say, you know, 50 years or 300 years into the future, however far you want to project it, you know, what are some of the real fundamental changes that society is going to need to make, right? Either on the individual level and the choice scale or, you know, socially, like collectively, what kinds of changes are we going to have to make and how does what you're doing right now fit in with that? Me? Everybody's looking at me like, oh, goodness. You're the poet. I'm the poet. <laughs> I'm the science fiction. I think there's a strong chance that the future is going to look more like the past than people think that it might, because that's essentially what not sustainable means. It means we will not be going on like this. Like, and you could pick any aspect of it that you wanted. Um, food is a big one, right? Are we going to continue to ship food around the world in refrigerated cargo ships from heaven only knows where, from agriculture, you know, highly modified food, from, you know, raspberries from Chile in January. Should this be a normal thing? Probably not, right? Um, on the other hand, could we get rid of genetically modified organisms? Could we just shut off the, um, the Haber-Bosch process, which is the process that gets nitrogen from the air into the ground, into the crop. Probably not, because two-thirds of the nitrogen in your body comes from that process. So we're not, turning off, we're not turning off chemical agriculture tomorrow unless we're also willing to decrease the population by two-thirds, which seems like a no to But are me. you leading to Soylent Green here? Oh, please, no. Please I tell am. me we don't have to no, eat our no, poo. No, 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 <laughs> I just, I, you know, no. I just don't no. want to have to go there. No, but we need a new food system, and we need it urgently, and it needs to be sustainable, it needs to be local, it needs to be slower. So I think there's a lot of things in the future that are going to impact our lives on a very basic, very, you know, storyteller level, like what surface you sleep on and what you have for breakfast and how you get to school if you go to school, um, how you get to work if you go to work. Um, will we all be staying in our homes and networking? Uh, should we really be flying millions, hundreds of people across the country to talk about decarbonizing the future? Yeah, that, that's it yeah. is a bit ironic. Yeah. It is a little. Um, but so, do you see? Do you see? Like, because this sounds like you know, um, 
there's so much talk about the world expanding and we're, we're so interconnected and all this. This sounds like a sort of a shrinkage and becoming more localized. And, and that's all, like, what I think is interesting about this is when we talk, when indigenous peoples talk about this, mm-hmm. right, uh, words like tribalism and primitive and, you know, you want to go back to the 19th century and stuff like that. When we talk about, you know, sustainable lifestyles that we, ha- that we had for thousands and thousands of years here, it's always seen as like a regression, as sort of anti-technological stance. But what you're saying is actually very pro-technological, but just using it in different ways. Yeah. You can think of every system, every community as like a generation starship. It has to be self-sustaining, and it has to be enclosed, and it has to be balanced on a number of different axes, or everybody in it is going to die. Um, So I, I don't think it's necessarily going backwards, I think it's see, all history see, is a history is a pendulum. It, it swings, right? <laughs> it's it's a circle. It's okay. <laughs> the circle of life. This no, I'm not going to sing uh, it. It's probably copyrighted. We'd get slapped. <laughs> I think it falls it. under fair use, but you could go there for you. it. Yeah. Uh, I think. <laughs> one of the things that would be nice to have, and I think necessary for a sustainable future is reduction of inequality. I mean, there is enough food to feed the world. That's very clear. Even a world of 10 billion people. But there's not enough with the current distribution system, with the current inequality that exists. And so I think a sustainable future is one, in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite of going backwards. It's going forwards. I mean, society has always promoted inequality. Policy has promoted inequality. And so getting rid of inequality, I think, is, is going to be necessary both for an energy future and for a human future. See, this is where I think that like indigenous peoples have some things to offer too, because oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be pan Indian here because there were some societies that were very hierarchical and, you know, uh, but there's also many, many examples among indigenous peoples that, that there, that sort of level of inequality didn't exist because you had to rely on, on every, everybody was valuable. You couldn't waste anybody. Right. And so putting people in, into positions of uh, subservience or being out of balance and, and in bad relation with with the world around you you know is life or death and we're there we're there again but it's like nobody wants to recognize it right and so I, I just find it interesting. Like, I feel like I feel like indigenous peoples have to like team up with scientists <laughs> to like to get people to understand that when we when we talk about sustainability um, and and good relationships, that we're not. This isn't mumbo jumbo. This is like this is fundamental, um, you know, symbiosis of humans with our environment. And you know, we we can get there. We can get there with science. We don't have to reject. And, and, you know, burn everything down and throw our wooden shoes into the, into the factory <laughs> machines, right? Um, and I have a sort of, like, follow-up, because I know you do AI. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about reducing inequality, and there have been a couple, I think, pretty famous uh, stories that have come out recently of, of people trying to design AIs, and those AIs ending up just being extremely racist, uh, extremely sexist, reproducing, you know, a lot of the inequalities that we see now. So in your opinion, as somebody who, you know, knows the ins and outs of, of AI and has been involved in that, you know, do you think it's possible to be using AI technology as it stands to be changing society for the better? Or do you think that society has to change in order to create AIs that are not going to simply replicate the extremely hierarchical, you know, marginalizations that are currently happening? I think the latter. I think that society has to change. I mean, artificial intelligence, I mean, the branch that we deal with at CIFAR, machine learning, the, the bias gets built into the, to the learning algorithm by the data you provide it with. And so if you're a bunch of, you know, 25-year-old white male geeks in Silicon Valley feeding data into a machine learning algorithm, it will learn quickly from the bias data it gets. Okay, and there's a, a hideously famous example of Google identifying an African-American family as gorillas. You know, that was just an awful thing, but it was, it was a necessary outcome of feeding loads and loads of pictures of white people through Facebook, okay, and through Google searches. So AI will promote equality in society when society becomes more equal because AI, the machine learning, is based on the data that you feed it. And so this notion that machines are unbiased, yeah, they're unbiased, but they have bias put into them by the, by the people feeding data. Well, if we go back to renewable energy uh, and, and what you were talking before, the, the solution to the future is to adopt a very simple approach. Is If what I do 
other people would do it, what would happen? So if you want to ride your car to work, what happens is everybody drives a car, 10 billion people, and you quickly realize that, you know, that ain't going to work. So every decision you make, if you base it on the fact that, what would happen if everybody did it? That's the only way to actually start moving towards reducing equality because now every decision is based on a way of living that does not affect uh, the people around you. And with climate change, what it does is it poses a really big problem that you're affecting the future generation. And we're scientists and we know what's going to happen. We don't know it for certainty. My biggest fear is I don't trust my fellow scientists to be not so conservative. What really scares me about scientists that work in that area is their conservatism. And I would like to know at one point how bad is it going to get. I just don't have the ability to do that on myself, but I always read up on it, right? And when you're talking about science fiction, are we going to take this planet and going through a course where we just aren't going to do our share. And that share is every human on planet Earth has to look at their CO2 profile, and Canadians are the worst ones on Earth, and stop poo-pooing electric cars. And right now what we are afraid of is that we're not going to be able to curve that CO2 because we know how to do it. We know how to do it. Every, we know how to do it. But people... Every time people step and try to crush it, you know, I won't drive an EV because it dirties my pants. When are we going to wake up and very much like cigarette smoke, secondhand, don't do that in front of my baby, okay? I, I don't want to, to impact that. So we are impacting each other and the future generation. That gets pretty serious. So when you're talking about science fiction, I'm caught in the science fiction. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and I'm not scared, but I'm not happy about it. And there's three movements that I brought to my life that I think is the future. One of them is spirituality. We have to move to a spiritual world. One of them, we have to move to a renewable world. And we have to stop eating animals. So in, in Canada, um, like Canada is an interesting situation because we, we have a fairly small population that's almost entirely concentrated, you know, within a few kilometers of, of the U.S. border. And so, you know, we call that the urban south. And the urban south benefits, you know, profoundly from uh, resource extraction in, in the north where mostly indigenous peoples are living, right? So you're talking a little bit there about how... Uh, the impacts of what we do, we don't feel them directly. They're sort of like they're offset on others, right? You know, raspberries from Chile and things like that. And so in Canada is a really intense example of that because you have hydroelectric power, for example, uh, you know, in the James Bay. And, and the people who, who had to have their territories flooded and impacted by that are not directly benefiting from the cheap energy, the cheap electricity that flows to the urban south. They're using diesel, right? Just the worst, the most polluting sort of form of energy possible. Um, so how do, you think, how do you think that the science that you do um, would impact Indigenous peoples? Like, how could we, how could we take away the, the sort of the decision-making that's all done in the urban south for the benefit of the urban south, all to the detriment of people who are living pretty much everywhere else. Right now what's happening is if you want to work with First Nations, you're going to have to expose them to not being the first, but being the first people to really experience new technology. And that's difficult. So you, like really wanted, you, you really want to de try these in the south. But white man in the south does not want to try those technologies. People underestimate in the South how much First Nation hate diesel. Uh, my, my little travels and working with these people is how much they hate it. Now, they're too polite to tell us. They're too polite. But they hate it. They hate the smell. They hate going to bed and smelling diesel. They hate it that it's in the ground. They hate that white man brought it in. Now, I develop technologies to fix that problem, okay? And I'm on the right path. But it's not something that's done overnight. I will, we will have kinetic turbines. We will have marine turbines. 
in up north. Canada has enough rivers to do all our electrical supply, but more important, we can supply First Nations, and First Nations are calling our center, and they want to know some of it. But the thing is, it's, it's, we're not ready, okay? We're caught into this. And we have no legislation to go in and say, well, what happens if you discriminate against recent sunlight? What do you mean? Why not? If you've got people that are paid by taxpayers and are on the other side and they're blocking you. Why? Because they can. Because there's no consequences to them. So um, you've talked a bit about how you feel like the technology you work with can, can save the world if things change enough, if there, if, if there stops being blockages. But um, we're sort of interested, too, in knowing if, if there's any potential pitfalls here. If, if your technology could actually destroy the world, like what are some of the, what are some of the problems start, starting at the end here? Storytelling has rarely destroyed the world. Um, but I do think um, we need to think about this. I mean, there is so much urgency around acting about decarbonizing our energy, and that is entirely appropriate, because what else are we going to do? We need to do it, we need to do it now, or what will we tell our children, right? We knew what we, want, we needed to do, but we didn't do it. That's not acceptable. Um, but to do it without thinking about it, and to do it without stopping and telling yourself a story about it and imagining it out into the future. Like the grid, for example. We pretty much need to either replace or possibly leapfrog the grid. I'm not an expert. I don't entirely understand it. But it's clear to me that it's falling apart. Um, and it's clear to me that we need a next generation grid. But the, the grid embodies a hundred years of social prejudice and you know who's got the power and who doesn't have the power quite literally. So do we just rebuild it on the same tracks with new superconducting wires? Do we switch to AC transmission? That's not good enough. We need to stop and think about what's next um, and develop a new story and something. I really do think it needs to be local, but you know, I'm, I'm hardly a carbon expert. Um, but yeah, I think if, if we just barrel ahead, we could end up recreating what we have, but more so or recreating some different prejudice that we built into the system, but more so, definitely could happen. We have a tendency to, and so I'll, I'll not use an energy example, I'll use, the, again, the artificial intelligence example. Uh, we develop technology quite quickly, we, we apply it quite quickly, it's in the you know, corporate interest to adapt machine learning to you know, Facebook and Google and you know, all of these companies. We are just now asking what is the societal implication? What does it mean to be a human if we can build a machine that can learn like a human being? We're not there yet, but let's imagine that we get there. Um, talking about science fiction, you know, what happens if we actually do build intelligent robots? Um, that's coming. And the experts in the field think it's still maybe a generation away, but it is coming. And so there's a tendency always in our society, in Western society, not necessarily in indigenous society, but in Western society, to develop a technological solution and then afterwards ask the question, what does this mean for society? And, and it can mean good things for society or it can mean bad things for society. I'm afraid of uh, fusion. If we found fusion, I don't think the human being is ready to have infinite source of energy. I'd be afraid. I'd look at the dark side. Without fusion, I don't see how you can go wrong with renewables. How can you be going wrong with recent sunlight? Because I get tired of hearing about carb decarbonization. The only thing, I call it the red policy. This is the future. Renewable efficiency demand. I don't care which one you take. You either install renewables, you increase efficiency, or you reduce your demand. So if you want to go back 300 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and bring down your energy demand to zero and just live by the fireplace, I'm so happy. I hope you invite me. 
I want to live in that world. I have no effort, problem living in that world. If other people want to consume a lot of energy and I need 10 TVs, which I don't like TV, but if they want it, let it be renewable. Let it be so it doesn't impact their neighbor. It doesn't impact the, the, the commons. The problem is, is the CO2 is in the commons. The common is the common air all across nations. There's no political boundaries. And that's why it's hard to solve, because we have to work as one. So it sounds like, Eric, you're in your basement trying to make, you know, the utopic future happen. Trying not to hulk out. Trying not, yeah, <laughs> trying not to, keeping, keeping that heart rate low. Um, but for John and Aaron, what do you see, say, like 50 years in the future, what is your utopia when you think about our energy future? What does it look like? And how is what you're doing going to bring us there? Give us best-case scenarios here. Yeah, let's, like let's it can finish be on a positive. completely, you know, think sci-fi. It can be anything you want. Yeah. If, 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 if you had enough resources, money, and political will behind you, what would you accomplish with what you're doing? The experience of, of research and, and human progress is that we almost certainly can't predict what will be key technology, what will be, you know, the salvation 50 years into the future. We can, we're pretty good at predicting, you know, what will be the key technology a year from now or what we have presently. I think 50 years into the future, anytime I've seen, I mean, the National Research Council in the States would, used to, I think they've given up now, publishing, you know, futures of technology and they'd ask scientists like myself, what's going to be the, the next big thing, and they generally miss the next big thing. Yeah, I know, but it's so funny when they do. I like, know, some it's of the things great. That, you, look, you read like the pulp science fiction from the 50s, you know, those 25-cent ones, and some of the ideas that they had, it's hilarious. So, so Sometimes the science your, fiction writers do, I mean, Gibson got the internet, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But, but, but you're, you see, because you're hedging a little. You're like, I don't want to predict, because you okay. don't want to be that guy and, who would look back and we're like, ha, ha, but just do it, just do it, do it. Do it. Okay, someone so, record it. Yeah, so someone record it. So, what I can say is, is my organization is dedicated to the long-term vision. It is dedicated to the decades into the future. So we're not so interested in what's the current uh, technology, but what's the next technology. So one program that we're supporting, uh, our only energy program, is uh, called Bio-Inspired Solar Energy, and it's basically can you create fuel from sunlight and carbon dioxide directly, rather than photovoltaics, and then using the electricity to then, you know, drive a catalyst to, to, to reduce carbon dioxide. Okay, that's one program. But, you know, the machine learning program that we've been running for decades now, maybe that's the future. You know, intelligent cities, talking about efficiency and reducing demand, intelligent cities. Other programs, we're interested in, in what institutions and what educational systems reduce inequality. And, and uh, a question that you did ask, what, what's our connection, CIFAR's connection with indigenous communities? CIFAR from its very beginning has been concerned with early childhood development. That was Fraser Mustard's original goal, was to understand the impact of, of social inequality and income inequality on child development and the long-term impact of that. We're now working with uh, our child and brain development group is working with a First Nation in southern Alberta on an early childhood intervention. So normally interventions occur with school-age kids. Uh, the argument, the lessons we've learned from epigenetics is that if you wait until past three, you're too late. And so they're working with the community, developing interventions for prenatal to three years old and seeing if that has an impact on literacy and education outcomes in this nation. Will we see a result tomorrow? No. We'll know the answer 15, 20 years from now. Wow. Um, 50 years in a utopia, huh? Um, I don't know. It could happen. It could happen. Sure, it could happen. Um, I spend a lot of time, because I write for young people, I spend a lot of time in junior highs and high schools. And I know this is unfashionable and if in my kids are, are 9 and 11, so talk to me again in five years. But I love teenagers. I really do. They are so interested and so passionate and so positive and so global. And they're 
more aware of their prejudices than I was when I was a teenager, certainly. Um, there are a lot of interesting international things happening where people are building virtual communities of like-minded people, which is new since when I was a teenager. I think that there is a possibility for a positive future in that. I worry that in terms of carbon shift, it's, you know, God bless Malcolm Gladwell for introducing the word tipping point into our vocabulary. I think we're past the tipping point. I think uh, the ice caps will melt, probably not over the next hundred years, but over the next thousand. I think the temperature will come up. Two um, percent is two degrees is the target. Um, I think we're on a path for something more like four. Let me give you an example. If the temperature comes up by four degrees, the Yangtze Delta, where Shanghai is, where the Yangtze spills into the sea, there are about 150 million people that live there. They will pretty much all be displaced in another 100 years. We need to build a future where we can take in that kind of displacement and build communities around displaced people, around virtual cultures, around sharing. So you can take in displaced people and build, you know, because the thing that happens in my book is, you know, they all go to war and start shooting each other. Surely that's not our only option. And I feel like if you put today's teenagers in charge, that would not be what they do. So I'm somewhat hopeful that um, today's young people who will be in charge in 50 years, who will be the old people in 50 years, will have built something that's a little bit more inclusive and a little bit more global, but at the same time more intensely local and more connected and more thoughtful and more outward-looking than we can do today. I'm, I'm so impressed by how much you guys talk about things like social inequality and the idea of organizing around displacement and and things like that as being sort of central tenets to you to the science that you do. Because to be honest, I didn't expect that. Um, you know, when we look at science, often we feel as non-scientists, uh, or I'm going to speak for myself here, and maybe Molly feels wildly different, but that often um, you know people are so focused on their on the technology and feel that science is is apolitical, right? Like it, it, and and you do see scientists who really do push that. You know, it, science is apolitical. It's just it's it's you know it is what it is and it doesn't matter about people, but this kind of, you know, even though you're painting very grim pictures here, you know, but, but it's also, I think people do need to hear that. Uh, but you're also giving me a bit of hope that, the, that what we require, that what we need, uh, you know, to have, uh, to have that social inequality addressed, to built in, uh, be a feature of the system, not, not just like something you tack on at the end, um, that people are actually thinking about that, makes me feel a lot better about kind of the next 300 years. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think we can get there to our utopia. I, I hope so, because I cannot wait to get on that ship and just be a curmudgeon and not have yeah. to deal with Play anybody. softball. Oh, man, we're going to... When worry we retire in 300 years, we're just going to sit up there and just, like, knit and drink wine and complain. And I cannot wait. All the time. <laughs> it's mostly what we do now. Honestly. Yeah. Well, actually, we're living the dream, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah all right. Live your best life. In the do future, it now. in the present, do it all. <laughs> I think we're about out of time, um, but hopefully um, our fantastic panelists can stick around uh, if you have any questions for them. Um, so please joining me in saying a big thank you, I, I, to mm, hey, hey. Eric, John, and Aaron. And also a big to all of you for joining us here on Otpem Suesquewa Kitsigisgok Miti in space, 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 space. Otpem Suesquewa Kitsigisgok Miti.